Hello, everyone. Uh, we just want to first of all welcome you all to this week's Family Law Now live presentation on Artificial Intelligence and Family Law 201 Advanced Topics. We appreciate all of you joining us over the next hour. We also want to thank our guest speakers, Jerry Zhao and Guy Sakalakis, for joining Russ for today's discussion. They were on our program early, earlier this year for part one of this presentation, and today they're going to take the opportunity to delve deeper into AI and the legal profession. So on today's agenda, the topics of focus are general AI engines versus specific ones, using Google search generative experience for research, emerging legal tech tools such as case text and Harvey, larger data processing, also be discussing trends and developments with custom AI avatars, autonomous agents and customer service, using AI-enabled CRM and other tools to assist in email writing and prompt and engineering and plugins. The panel will also reserve some time for audience questions throughout the presentation. So now I'm going to take a few moments to introduce our panelists. So Jerry is the CEO of Doc Equity, where he drives the company's vision for the next generation of work and knowledge automation. Prior to Doc Equity, Jerry led product teams at Microsoft building productivity experiences for knowledge workers on the cutting edge of AI and interactive technologies. Next, we have Guy, who founded Attorney Sync to help lawyers grow their practices. As a non-practicing lawyer himself, he is familiar with the unique considerations of effectively and ethically marketing a law practice. He also is the current co-chair of the American Bar Association Tech Show, co-host of the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, and investor and advisor to legal tech, including Lawmatics and Gideon. And last but not least, we have Russell. He uses his knowledge and expertise to serve his clients in all aspects of family law and uses his experience to create unique solutions for each client to enable them and their families to move forward while supporting them through the transition of divorce and separation. And Russell has also written four books on the legal profession, and he also offers his experience in speaking at conferences on collaborative practice, marketing, technology, and the law. So I will let you take it away now, Russ. Thank you for those kind words, Shannon. Let's run our first poll while we uh, do a little bit more introductory comments. Uh, I recommend Guy's podcast. It's fantastic. I listened to it. We'll put a link into the show notes today if you want to learn more about legal tech. Uh, so let's find out who our audience is. So thank you for joining us today. And we've got about 58% legal professional, 26% other um, professional, 11% uh, from another field. And uh, some law students joining us today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. So let's get into it. General AI engines versus specific ones. So Jerry, what do we need to know here? This is sort of an advanced topic. We did the introductory program a few months ago. You can see that recording online. So we're going to do a bit more of a deeper dive today. So Jerry, help us out. Yeah, so hopefully everyone uh, has gotten the chance to play with uh, something like ChatGPT now. So, you know, three, four months later, we see a bunch of companies investing a lot of money into this technology. And it's kind of split into two pieces of investment. So there's a lot of companies, including Doc Equity, where we're building on top of uh, general AI engines such as uh, OpenAI's GPT-4 or Anthropic's Cloud or some of these other types of general systems. And then on the other uh, end of the spectrum, there's companies that are seeking to train their own AIs. And what they've done is they've taken these open source uh, foundation models, and then they've 
brought in their own data to try to tr create task-specific uh, AI. And what's really interesting about how this kind of land will play out is that there's a lot of different tasks about reading text that are really rote or routine that you can train specific language models to go do for you, such as uh, if you're trying to parse uh, financial statements in family law and picking out the anomaly. That's something that um, you can probably train an AI engine to do. But all the engines that people try to speak to, like if you want to chat with it, or if you want it to have a much more general, broad idea of uh, the world where you're asking it questions or you're trying to create um, text, then those are general AI engines. So as we move forward in this industry, as you kind of go and see pieces of technology from websites to your practice management software to um, the documents that you generate, um, those two ideas will be pervasive everywhere. So that's kind of like a rundown of what we're seeing right now. Great. Keith, what do you think of all this? I think Jerry covered it very well. All right. Thank let's you. Get, <laughs> let's, get, let's get to our next poll question then. Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic about AI in the legal profession? I'm going to give everybody just a moment to answer the, this poll question. Uh, but we had an audience question coming in in advance. How is AI impacting the legal job market? If it's not impacting it yet, do the experts expect it will do so? Guy, what do you think is going to happen to the legal profession? Huh. Well, I think that the in the short term, at least, you know, the lawyers that uh, embrace the ways that it can be an assistive tool are going to have a huge competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, I do think, you know, a lot of the conversations we're in it's like the um, existential question, right? Is AI going to end lawyers? And at least in the short term, and we'll save the philosophy for later, but at least in the short term, I don't think that it's going to end lawyers, but it's not gonna end all, all lawyers. Some lawyers that are still billing uh, clients, you know, 500, 600, $1,000 an hour to do things that the market can have done by generative AI and, and other AI and, and other tools in general. I mean, again, this is, it's really just, uh, in my view, in some ways, you know, it, it's got to remind you a little bit of like what's been going on at LegalZoom and some of these other um, companies that have tried to support the legal consumer market. But it's a lot, obviously, it's a lot more advanced than that. And so, you know, if you've been, if you're still doing that, yeah, I think that a lot of that work is probably going away. I mean, I think the market's already starting to circumvent some of that. And I think that that trend's going to continue. But there's a lot of stuff. And as Jerry, as the skeptic, I'm sure will chime in here. There's tons of stuff that lawyers do that um, certainly the current iterations of generative AI and, and really all all AI to date really can't isn't even close to doing. And so um you know, I think there's going to be some market pressure. And I, and I think the other thing that's likely to, you know, that we've been, this isn't an AI specific thing, but AI might be the thing that finally pushes us to be more focused on value-based pricing and, and dumping the billable hour. Because, you know, again, if you've got eight hours in a day and that work can be done by AI in seconds or minutes, um, that's going to change the game. So. I agree. I'm optimistic for the people who get ahead of the, the curve. 22% um, of our audience is optimistic, 24 pessimistic, both 42% and neither 11%. So there we got a nice little, um, do, you want, do you want to comment on this audience question uh, before we move on, um, yeah. Jerry? Um, well, so I'll take the other side. 
key. And so the way I think about AI, at least like I, I have no comment on the Ray Kurzweil singularity AI. That's a different story for a later like age probably. But, um, you know, when you think about technology breakthroughs, I think an equivalent technology we can go think about is like um, before before the invention of printers, how did law firms copy their documents? They probably had to get some typist to like copy them from one to the other, right? And so it uh, so now like there's this ability for us to manipulate words and like basically build automation on top of concepts versus um, specifically on each character. That's kind of what uh, language models do. So you know, it's going to transform the industry to be more efficient, but it's still another tool, like how every law firm has like a laser printer and a scanner in their office. And uh, so there's probably a consolidation of labor in some ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we're going to do, we're going to get into this a bit more. But using Google search generative experience for research. Um, Dee, what, what does our audience need to know here? So um, and, uh, we talked about this briefly on our last session, so I, I encourage folks to check that out, but I want to do a little bit of deeper dive and um, actually do a live example of this. Um, the, so Google announced at their I.O. Uh, conference, which is basically their developer conference, uh, this search generative experience uh, thing. And if you go to Google Labs or search for Google Labs, you can sign up to opt in. It's a sandbox program. It's experimental. They've alluded to that maybe they were going to, um, you know, talk about uh, releasing this more in 2024. But they've been very cautious uh, and judicious in their release of AI, even though it's baked into all of their systems. The generative AI and search results, they've been a little bit slow to um, release it. But I think from a from a marketing standpoint, if you're a family law practitioner and you serve a local community, you're probably um, familiar with Google search results in some capacity and local pack results. And so what I want to call out and I wanted the thing I want folks to be on on this as it relates to AI is uh, when you opt into the experiment environment, you get this little can you get an AI powered overview of the search. And if you click generate, it's going to generate a different set of results. And so if you're forward looking and you want to know like, hey, it's still important for me to appear to my customer, my client base um, in search results in the future, you're going to want to take a look at what where kind of Google's going with this in the generative experience. And I'm just going to call out a couple important uh, things. The first is understanding how Google is actually sourcing the results. And so when you see uh, these little results up here, um, there, there's some of them are directories, some of them are going to be blogs, some of them are going to be Google reviews, but it, it gives you a sense of how the machine is organizing some of the information based on the query. And so in some ways, it's just like traditional SEO, but what we've noticed, and in fact, if you go to moz.com, which is a site that does a lot of SEO research, uh, they have a recent study out that only about half of the results are the same as they are in the traditional results, meaning that the generative AI is like producing the same result. And so if you've been ranking in local packs or you've been you know, uh, highly visible for your target queries, I would, I would get involved in this experiment so that you can start researching uh, how the machine is actually uh, publishing these results because it's going to be much different. And so it could be a shock to your system if they flip the switch and turn this on in the wild, like, oh boy, all of a sudden the results are totally different. The other thing that I think is really important to note is these follow-ups. And I think this is gonna shape uh, searcher behavior a lot because they're actually, it's almost like a prompt built into the experience. 
to say, hey, do you have a follow-up question? Like maybe this search didn't answer what you wanted. And so they're going to be impacting how searchers actually search. So I'd be making sure that you've got content that answers the questions and the follow-ups and you're addressing that in, you know, various uh, media and, you know, if you're doing YouTube videos or whatever that you're doing, those, you know, this is reflective of the types of things that the machine thinks that people are looking for. And so I think it behooves lawyers to um, be creating content based on those queries. So is Google going to put paid ads in the generative search? That's the bread and butter. So we don't know, but my my guess is yes, because they're essentially, you know, I'm going to say this and people are going to laugh, but uh, they're a one-trick pony, right? 98% of their revenue comes from clicks on ads. I, I don't think they're going to uh, kill their golden calf by taking ads out of the generative results. Kind of shoots themselves in the foot though, right? We're saying, here's the AI, here's the AI results, but wait, before we get to that, we're going to show you our paid, paid ads. So you're back to where we started, right? Yep. So... I think that, honestly, I think that's part of their reluctance is that they, you know, that's their cash machine and uh, how are they going to put those results in? Now, in some of the e-commerce results we've seen, there, there are ads showing up. Um, so, you know, their idea is the same way as orga traditional organic results, they're going to show you a mix. We're starting to see some cracks here, right? You remember Yellow Pages was the top dog. Where are they now? <laughs> Google's right. scrambling. Uh, do you want to get on this discussion, Jerry? Well, it's actually the first time I saw that experience and my mind just went to how they built it. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if they use that one search and then use generative AI to generate similar searches that then they run against the Google engine that then results in just aggregates all those results back into. Uh, so maybe the quality of the search is higher, but it doesn't seem like it's too much of a change from their original experience, except maybe it's a little bit better now, or it's a little bit more general. And that may be something we see from a lot of companies are these nice incremental improvements to their uh, existing systems. Yeah, so let's run our next poll. And um, from what I understand, from what, you know, Google's got AI systems that are at the best in the world. They just haven't released them yet. They're only coming out now because they're trying to catch up to chat GPT, but They've been at this for a while, so they're holding back a lot, in my opinion, but I, from my limited knowledge. So next poll question, let's see if our audience is still awake. Are you using AI in your practice? So you got a couple options there. We're gonna to go to another audience question. Uh, I'm gonna throw this one to Jerry. Can you uh, do legal documents using AI? That's a bit of a lob ball for you, but what's the <laughs> answer to that question? Well, so before I answer, the caveat is Doc Equity is an AI-driven document automation engine. So the answer is obviously going to be a yes. But I'll go into a little detail about kind of where uh, most people are and how and we- full disclosure, we use Doc Equity to generate AI documents at my firm. Just let everybody know. But go ahead, Jerry. Sorry. So uh, if you think about the lowest hanging fruit for generating a document, then you would just go into ChatGPT and you would say something like create a divorce application for Ontario, right? And you pass in a few facts and it'd be able to generate for you. The problem is that the document actually takes a lot of context, like all this different information about the, the client. It's also not private to definitely use something like ChatGPT. And it's also not predictable what the outcome is. So what Doc Equity does is we are able to break down the document into the different types of pieces that what we would call dynamic, like all the different paragraphs that depend on data and all the different types of outcomes. And each paragraph or each section of the document is tightly controlled. And that way, 
uh, you create something that was open-ended before using uh, a large language model into something very deterministic. And as we move forward, we've gotten a lot more scientific about this, kind of building out the different types of impacts of prompts to accuracy and measuring the different types of data and what kind of outputs that they create. So we've been um, innovating quite a bit. And from our results, we think that a lot of these data-driven heavy documents are easily automated by large language models if they're not uh, involving too much critical thinking. Right. And with critical thinking, then you start getting into like providing options and being more streamlined about that. But that's kind of a little tidbit about what we do. And just to speak from my experience, we've got several lawyers at my firm. They all have different writing styles and different ways of putting together pleadings. You can teach the AI to, you know, prepare this pleading in the style of Russell Alexander. So they know which lawyer they're tailoring it to, which is really quite amazing. All right, so let's go to our audience. Are you using AI? No, 57%. Not sure, 14%. Well, not sure, because probably a lot of the programs you are using have AI in it. Uh, just starting at 25%. Yes, 100% in 3%. So certainly um, lots of learning to go on today. Let's go to emerging trends and tech tools, such as Case Tech and Harvey. Um, who wants to start this one off? Jerry? Sure, I can uh, start. So um, already we see a bunch of movement in like the AI technology. So the big one was Thomson Reuters just acquired case text for north of half a billion dollars. And then um, Harvey is another big contender here. And what we've seen with like the most popular tools out there are that they kind of resemble a chatbot very similar to something like ChatGPT except that they use, and they use GPT-4, and they've kind of used these prompts to lock it in. So all you can do is talk to it about legal things, and it's obviously been tested. And they offer a few more tools that allow you to be able to use their own data with these um, with these programs. So case text is notable because they have all of the precedents and court rulings of the United States, which is obviously um, highly fragmented and distributed. So you're going to be able to use all of that and summarize and uh, do a lot of legal research. Harvey's uh, a similar kind of idea. Uh, they they all specialize in this prompt engineering. Now, on the other side of things, we talked about task-specific AI. So uh, there's companies that have built a product you may have heard of called Spellbook, which basically is a word plugin that allows you to be able to um, interact with that, draft contracts and do things like that. And those are, um, those are built, uh, trained on like a foundation model. I think they use BERT. And so it's, a, it's quite a bit different because it doesn't know as much about anything else. And it only knows about the task it's, it's trained on. Uh, it's still an open-ended question whether a big company like OpenAI can create a more powerful general model or like specific verticals can create task-specific task models better. What do you think? Emerging yeah, I, I, well, I think something that Jerry said at the outset, I think is important because, you know, we get all this hype and all these headlines and we start, we tend to paint with broad brushes. And so when we say AI or chat GPT, but the truth is, is that there's all sorts of different uh, types of AI and there's, uh, you know, some are relying on, as Jerry mentioned, um, you know, open AI's technology, some are building their own. But, and I think it was interesting with the poll question, I appreciate the uh, honest 14%, and I, Russ, I think you alluded to this too, but there are all sorts of programs you're probably using that have some AI built into them already. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's, and Jerry mentioned a couple of the contexts, but like, you know, Filevine, they're working on AI in the practice management sense. And so I think it's like, to me, we got to open our minds up a little bit more beyond just like, hey, can AI write blog posts for me? But like, think about it when you get to a point where you can actually do more efficient legal research. And if you haven't tried some of these legal research, uh, assist, AI assisted tools, you really ought to do a demo. It's remarkable. Um, and, and the document tools. And then and, and the think about on practice management, think about the types of insights. I don't know if, if listeners are familiar with some of the uh, Google Analytics and Google Ads, but they have AI generated insights that they provide. And so you know what AI is really good at is taking huge amounts of data and distilling insights and pattern recognition. And if you start running that on, you know, you've got to have a statistically significant amount of your own data to work with. But think about running that on your firm data to be able to understand like where you're spending time, where you're spending money, client satisfaction, uh, outcomes, you know, the, the, the impact it's going to have on the courts. Um, and it's it's not that far side, like uh, far fetched sci fi to be thinking about um, all of the different uses that AI can have from a whether it's access to justice, um, you know, just the, the the administration of justice, like just there's so much data there that has just largely been, you know, left untapped for as long as we've been doing this. Yeah. And personal injury lawyers have been doing it for a while. They're using AI to predict whether or not they want to take these cases on. Right. Um, so you're, lar- let's go to the next topic. Larger data processing. What do we need to know, Jerry? So the big limitation with these AI programs is that they can only process a few thousand words at a time. So if you've ever played with ChatGPT, and let's say that you wanted to to read like a previous court ruling, well, you wouldn't be able to paste it in because it only takes like 2000 words. So in the court ruling, maybe like, you know, 30, 40 pages, which is essentially something like eight to 12,000 words. So what people do is they um, start breaking it into pieces and summarizing them and joining them back together, whether you're doing that by hand because you're a, you're an attorney or you're a software engineer and you do this programmatically by breaking it into pieces. And then in that process, you lose a lot of context. So scientists, um, data scientists have been working on expanding these context windows. So like the breakthroughs here are like Anthropic, which is funded by Google, now can handle something like 10,000 or 100,000 characters. And then OpenAI has a 32K GPT-4 model that um, I believe that uh, some of the like case text and these guys are powered on. But what that means is that uh, we'll be able to distill the knowledge from books and different types of legal documents in a lot easier to digest manner, meaning like they're a lot more queryable for you. Like right now, like one of the questions that um, probably people would wonder as a lawyer is like, you know, instead of having to search for things, why can't you just ask the AI for an answer? And, you know, we all know that there's a ton of hallucinations and all this stuff that makes it inaccurate. Well, these limitations in context windows are what is causing that inaccuracy, because if you rely on the AI's like pattern recognition abilities outside of what data you're passing in, it's going to be significantly less accurate. So we're we're all looking toward larger processing powers and larger context windows moving forward to create a lot more accuracy in the system. All right, good to know. Let's go to our next poll. Does a failure to adopt AI amount to professional negligence or incompetence? Um, so it'll be interesting to see what how our audience, uh, what take they take. I have my own opinion, but let's see what our audience thinks. A couple questions. Um, question came in, Jerry, the, the program I'm using in my firm, 
it's just called doc equity right it doesn't have any kind of software name or is there a program name to it no it's just called doc equity we are still you know in the process of launching publicly but i would say you know if they want to get in touch they should probably sign up on our website or get in touch with you russ and you'll put it right. okay i didn't know if you had a fancy name for it or <laughs> Not yet. okay so another audience question that came in and this is uh this is an issue my firm's struggling with right now if you're using ai to assist with tasks automating letters that would otherwise take 20 minutes to draft in less than a minute easy to do an example is you take you want to do a final reporting letter. Lawyers hate these because usually there's no money in trust. You want to pay for your file. You can take the, the, court, the court order, drop it into AI to create a report for you in under a minute. Just amazing. So you're freeing up that unbilled time. But other tasks, uh, which you would ordinarily bill for, how do you charge a reasonable fee for billing hourly? Uh, you know, this is, this is a problem, right? Who wants to... Uh, Gee, you're a lawyer. What do you think? Yeah, I, so my uh, trying to be optimistic about it. Optimistically, what I would say is, is that congratulations, you freed up a much more bandwidth to be able to help clients do other things that is actually more valuable use of your time. And so your capacity to serve legal services consumers has grown. Hooray. Now, I say that and it's like, yeah, but what happens if 80%, 90% of your fees right now are from those types of tasks that the AI can do in minutes. And there's a matriculation to client development. So I'd be like, that's great. Now I took my eight hour day and condensed it down to one hour. I better be spending seven hours going out and doing client development. Yeah, yeah. You, it's a chance to serve more clients, I agree. But people are nervous, right? This is the bread and butter. This is the way they've been making money. Uh, do you have a take on this, Jerry? Well, I think that I mean, I'm I'm much more of a business person, right? So I'm going to come from the business perspective, which is that the market has, even though there are hourly billing today for a consumer of that service, someone like me who you know hires lawyers for a company or something, um, it's just a final number for me. Like the how you get to that doesn't matter too much. So like, for example, if we're talking about family law, like one of the numbers that got ingrained in me early on from Lee Rosen was like, hey, look, like an average divorce costs about 10 grand. So, you know, that's just how how much they're going to spend on that. So however you come up with that number and how you justify that, there's definitely some testing with the clients to see how they can absorb those uh, those costs. But um, to me, if you uh, if you if you just tether to that number and you kind of build back up using technology, then you're going to have a lot better profits at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's a work in progress. Let's see what our audience thinks about our poll question here. Um, does it amount to negligence or incompetence? No, 52%. Yes, 11%. Negligent if you fail to understand uh, AI simplification, 24%. Incompetence if you do not use AI, 8% and other so uh fairly widespread rules of professional conduct do require us to deliver efficient legal services so um we cover that off in our book but let's let's press on because we're going to get into some fun stuff here uh trends and developments and uh custom avatar so gee you're going to speak to this and then we're going to do a little presentation i think yeah so um again this is very new but there are companies that you can have a bunch of photos taken 
and they will create uh, an avatar that can, and that, and an avatar, it can be uh, an image, but the, the exciting ones to me are the video ones. And whether you're doing, you know, client education, so you know, maybe you're doing an overview of the discovery process or something like that, you know, you can have, you can just either talk or it'll actually take written words and create a video. I mean, you know, call it a deep fake if you want the shorthand of it, of you presenting the information. Um, and uh, uh, Russ, I think you have an example you're going to share. I was going to share an example from Synthesia. Um, it's not there yet, right? You can tell, right? And, th and there's a bunch of safeguards put in because people get concerned like, oh, can someone now create a deep fake of me? And they've got watermarks and all this kind of stuff to, to help protect uh, privacy and, and stuff. But it's if remarkable. You, if you got yours queued up, we can run yours and then run mine. Sure. It, it is amazing. You could just see the technology. This is just going to get better uh, as the processing power improves and uh, the software improves. But you run yours and then I'll get Shannon to run mine. So Guy brought this up as a topic and I said, we're already doing this um, and we're looking at doing it to generate content. But let's see yours. Everyone, today. We're demystifying the world of standard operating procedures, especially tailored for trucks and co's operations. Standard operation processes are our blueprint for routine operations. Written step-by-step -step guides that ensure structure and you Okay, we get it. Let's go to mine. <laughs> so what, what I did with mine, we did, uh, the AI took my image and my voice, We unrelated to the subject we're going to look at here. We gave it a script, and this is what it generated. What if my child doesn't want to visit their other parent? Do I have to force them? Welcome, I'm Russell Alexander. I'm a divorce lawyer in Ontario. So, I don't know if that's freezing up at your Yours head. is even better. That is crazy. So <laughs> I, that's all AI generated, my voice, my image. All we did was send, a, send in a script, hit, hit the button, and then the video shows up. It's really quite amazing. And then think about, think about how remarkably more efficient it is to type out a script than having to do all the production work and yeah. the editing and it's unbelievable. Well, we'd go in there. We used to use Canon cameras. We're using iPhones now. Um, run it two, three times. There might be a few errors, right? And then um, edit it, process it. Now we just send it in and it generates it automatically. And you, could only, you can imagine how much further this is gonna go in the near future, but let's go back to our audience. Let's see what our audience is thinking now that they, they, they've seen some of the trends. So will AI improve or eliminate legal profession as we know it? So we'll give everybody a chance to um, answer that question. Couple audience questions that come in, does today's session count towards CPD? We have applied to the Law Society for accreditation. We'll let you know as soon as it comes in. Shannon will follow up with you. Let's go back to another audience question. Um, what ethical considerations arise when artificial intelligence is used in marketing family law? How can these be addressed? You're our marketing guru. What have we got to be concerned about here? So a couple of things, you know, when we talked about this last time, but one, you shouldn't wholesale uh, paste whatever chat GPT or any of these tools generates because there is a plagiarism plagiarism issue. So a lot, you know, there's sources, the way that it sources some of this stuff, we've seen some examples where it's just literally copying uh, chunks of text from other sites. Uh, the second thing, of course, is client confidentiality. You know, they've had a couple big headline 
privacy incidents where prompts, uh, other people's other user prompts and the results from those prompts were uh, disseminated. And so I wouldn't be typing in um, any confidential information uh, into chat GPT. Um, don't put you know, I think there's the um, don't put your client social insurance information number. In yeah, don't do any of that. Don't do anything like that. But that, from a marketing standpoint, like, why would you do that anyway? Right. right. Um, yeah. You know, and, 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 and to that point, you know, there are all sorts of uh, rules, professional conduct that would apply if you were publishing as a human being. Right. So you don't want to you, you got to review it. Right. Like um, at least under the ABA's model rules, there's things there's certain things about like using superlatives and talking about expertise in a certain way, communicating the value of a lawyer services. And so ChatGPT doesn't know any of those rules. And so if you, it's like you're, the, you know, Russ is the best family lawyer in the world. And you put that on your website like you're going to be you get yourself in trouble. So the, the short answer to me is, is like. If anybody's writing something on your behalf, human or artificial intelligence, you should be taking a look at it and make sure you sign off on it. And Facebook has been doing this for a while. They have lookalike audiences that use AI. They can they can predict who's going to divorce in the next three months, and then you target to those audiences. So you that's really got to wonder. You know, that's, that's a pretty powerful tool, right? If you if you look, well, I love the conversation. Maybe this is a conversation for another time, but I love the debate about addressable media. So, you know, you can't solicit, you can't go to somebody and reach out to them that after they got a car accident, had them your business card. At least you can't do that in the states. But you can put a billboard up across from a hospital, and so with, with the digital equivalent of that is whether it's custom audiences or retargeting. You know, they 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 they're getting to the point where they they can identify the end user, end consumer of your ad. Is that solicitation or is that just a well placed billboard? That's right. Yeah. Let's see what our audience thinks. Okay. Um, improve or eliminate? Improve access to justice. Forty eight percent. Yes, it's definitely reduce costs. Well, we've given some examples of how that could occur today. Make lawyers obsolete. Three percent. Increase importance of uh, lawyers and uh, judgment. Clearly, seventy percent there. Um, so, fairly uh, strong opinions on that one. Autonomous agents in customer service. Um, Jerry, you want to start this one off? Yeah. So this is like the the hot thing in uh, what tech companies are doing right now. So I'll give you a brief intro to autonomous agents. So the idea of autonomous agent is essentially so today, like for example, with ChatGPT, you can start um, chatting with it, right? So it kind of seems like an agent or a person. Uh, the point where it becomes autonomous is that it can do things for you. So imagine if I'm ordering a pizza and I'm like, hey, can I, I'm hungry, can I get a pizza? And it says, okay, let me just order this pizza for you. So now it's able to call these external services and then probably generate more AI stuff to go then order that pizza. So what's really interesting about this is now there's these um, frameworks that are being built. So uh, the examples people like to use would be like, hey, I'm running for political office. Can you make this happen? And then it'll just go create a list for you. And it'll go down that list from like buying ads to writing your campaign to creating all these things. And one by one by one, it'll handle that for you. In the legal profession, you can imagine um, that there's autonomous agents both for the uh, your client and also for you. From, from your perspective, it'd be like, I'd want to make this filing on time. Can you do that for me, right? And I'll just kind of go through that. Um, but then on the customer service side, which is where I think the majority of research and technology is going, you know, they're 
they're predicting that this will be highly disruptive. I don't know. Um, in Canada, you guys have like Rogers or someone to call in for like your cell phone, right? It's like, it's always like, you're always waiting a million years. And even if you do chat today, they outsource that. So I can't wait until they put an autonomous agent with like your cell phone service. So I can just get the thing I want done really quickly, yeah. or hopefully that'll uh, happen in the next near future. Yeah. I think Apple might be doing that already in some services. Uh, Guy, what's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I would just reiterate that it's already here. Um, and especially from a marketing perspective, you know, we're always talking about reducing the friction to allow people to uh, move through the funnel of, to hire you. And, you know, lawyers that are still relying on like people that want to hire me are going to leave me a voicemail. There's leaving opportunity on the table. And again, not everybody's going to want to engage with one of these uh, conversational uh, customer support apps but give people the option, right? And the technology, you know, like every technology as it becomes more ubiquitous, the price comes down. Uh, and it's really, if you look at a couple of these, uh, Tom Martin with LawDroid, uh, Smith AI does this, and they, you know, they give you options and, and the consumer can opt out of the automated experience whenever they want, so they can get to a, a real person. But think about the efficiency there. You know, you can do intake, um, you can do, uh, you know, document assembly like on the fly in an automated way just by coming to someone's website. Like it's remarkable. Some people are introverts. They don't want to talk to anybody. Right. <laughs> they could chat to yeah. your company and get the result they want. They're perfectly fine with that. So, okay. Let's see what our audience thinks. Let's go to our next poll question. Will AI kill the lawyer's billable hour? So we, we've talked about some of the implications that we're looking at with this technology and how we uh, spend our time and more importantly, how we're building our time. Um, so we'll see what our audience thinks. And for our audience, I wanna thank everybody for participating and sending in your questions. They're excellent. You can still put it in your questions in the Q&A box if you have more and we'll try to get to them. So next question we had come in, we're gonna throw it over to uh, Jerry. Uh, what roles do lawyers play where artificial intelligence is increasingly used in family law? How can they work effectively with these technologies? Well, I think there's a, a couple uh, things that uh, come to my mind, right? Like I, as we go and automate, which is what Doc Equity is very focused on, you know, we're, we're focused on helping you automate the work products that are pretty well understood. So given the number of facts in this case and um, the routine drafting of many of these documents by humans, it's pretty well understood what the outcomes are. So that kind of gives uh, lawyers more time to go focus on the client experience, which I think is probably one of the most important parts of family law, given the fact that this is a really emotional time for, for clients. So um, I would just urge lawyers to think about uh, kind of reducing the operational side of their practice and letting automation take care of that and then focusing more on the human and the compassion side of things right. and that's kind of a win-win for everyone yeah i agree give us your take on this one yeah no i, I absolutely agree um i, I don't know I, I just think that the the lawyers that just like any technology if you embrace it and you understand use it as a tool it's going to be supportive it's going to make you more efficient i i do think though that like the types of work lawyers do um, the way you bill for different things might evolve. So, you know, but ultimately the the empathy, the soft skills, the professional judgment stuff, like the AI is not going to touch that stuff. I think the, the key is, is to 
make sure you're uh, getting the, you know, communicating and also receiving the value of that expertise. And, and the billable hour doesn't do a great job of encapsulating that. And so I'm hoping this is the push to value-based billing or flat fees or subscription models. Yeah, you know, Lori's really, it's like a sailboat. We got our hand on the rudder or the till and we're kind of guiding AI how it's going to help the client. Um, but it's an important function that they're going to maintain. So let's see what our audience thinks about our poll results here. Will AI kill the lawyer's billable hour? No, 8%. Yes, 15%. No, but block fees, fixed fees will become more prevalent. 75%. I think that's accurate. Um, and other is 1%. So thank you, everybody, for participating. Let's go to our next topic using AI-enabled CRM and other tools to assist in email writing. Uh, Guy, what do we need to know about this? So uh, first, a uh, quick disclosure. So I'm an advisor and investor to Lawmatics, which is a uh, AI-enabled uh, CRM for law firms. Um, and But again, this is a very new feature that they've added. But it basically, short version is right inside the CRM tool, the client relationship management tool. Uh, you can say, you know, send an email to so-and-so client to wish them a happy birthday. And, uh, you know, that, that example, you might think, well, that's not, that doesn't take very long to write happy birthday in an email anyway. Um, fine. But then you start thinking about like, write something, write an email to this client that describes the discovery phase of the representation and include pertinent dates from the contact record from the CRM. Then things get a little interesting because some of the examples I've seen, you can actually write up a, a summary and start uh, educating clients about the depositions, um, some of the time, like general timelines. And again, it, when, you, when you start to see it in action, you're like, wow, this, used, this would have taken me a lot of time. I would have had to get on the phone. I would have had to go and look at scheduling orders. I would have had to go and you know, do all this research. And the AI is pulling that data right from the CRM, the contact record in the CRM and crafting an email. And again, it's, you know, you look at it and sometimes it's not perfect and it needs a, another Passover, but that's an obvious one to me. And, you know, Lawmatics is not the only uh, tool that you can use to do that. Google's gonna be in, incorporating that into their workspace product. Microsoft's already incorporated into their uh, products. And so I think email writing and responding to emails and, and especially the interaction between contact records and emails, being able to pull that data that you have on a contact into the email automatically with the AI. Um, that's a really, really powerful tool for efficiency. And, and email, unlike, you know, Synthesia or these AI avatars, you know, it, it would be, you wouldn't be able to tell. It would be, it would pass the Turing test. You wouldn't be able to tell whether AI wrote it or if you wrote it. Yeah. Jerry, any comments on this? Well, I think it's, um, on like the higher level, it's interesting to uh, basically as a firm looks for efficiency, they can start looking at the routine templates of the same things they write all the time, right? And like email isn't really something that probably a lawyer sitting there thinking, oh, I can automate this. But now like what he's saying and showing is like, hey, if you identify the same types of emails you're always drafting all the time, then you can create a template that allows this to be easily automated with AI today. So the opportunities are there, but you have to be good about identifying them as well. I'm just thinking off the top of our head, you know, there's family lawyers send the same emails, initial reporting letter, reports after conferences, final reporting letters, um, you know, requests for instructions, uh, report on offers to settle. Those are 
they're a little bit different for every client, but they occur at every stage of every family file, right? So you can see how automating some or all these processes could be quite efficient. All right, so let's go to prompt engineering and plugins. Um, and this is, everybody's gonna get a little bit glassy eyed, but this is important, right? This is sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts and how to make AI work effectively. So Guy, you wanna go first and then we're gonna move over to Jerry. Yeah, I think there's a, a two different contexts, at least that I think we wanted to talk about today. And I'll let Jerry handle kind of the emerging field of prompt engineering um, as a software discipline. But for me, when, when and if you played with if you played with ChatGPT at all, uh, you start to notice that the quality of the response depends to a great deal on the prompt, right? And so, the more context you give it, uh, the better it uh, the better results you get. And so. There are people and, and even emerging uh, businesses that are uh, engineering these prompts that you can use for all sorts of different use cases. You know, again, I'm a marketing person, so we see a lot of it in the marketing context, but anywhere from auditing a piece of content for, you know, is it hitting the SEO high notes, um, you know, crafting uh, social media posts. Um, and so there's a, one that I was going to call it in particular, I think is very good is AIPRM, if you go to AIPRM.com. Um, you know, they, they have a free version, but the, the really powerful one, you're using the um, chat GPT-4 or, or 3.5 or 4. And then on top of that, uh, they have a bunch of uh, prompts already built out. And so it just saves you a lot of time and you can save prompts. Uh, you know, it's the same way Jerry was talking about uh, in terms of uh, email templates. You can have templates for different prompts. Um, and they, they also have some of that interface with like mid-journey, so you can uh, do uh, AI image generation through uh, these prompts. And there's a bunch of plugins too. So my big takeaway from this is, is that if you've played with ChatGPT and you're like, meh, that's not really the extent of what the generative AI can do, right? So if you're like, you know, write me a blog post about 10 things to do to think about when I'm going through a divorce case, that's like the real like basic thing. If you, if you layer in some of these um, engineered prompts and, and you utilize some of the plugins and you, you know it's 20 bucks a month, I think, for open API access, you really see the difference in the results. I, even I was skeptical at the, at the start of when I was playing around with it. I was like, these aren't, this isn't very good. Uh, but the more that you add, like the tone, you can add tones, you can tell it to you know, pretend that it's somebody, you can create um, client personas. That's another big one that we've done where you're, you know, you say, uh, you describe a, a client persona and it'll actually help you identify characteristics of potential clients and questions that they might have that you might not even thought about. And then you can, it's good inspiration for content development. Um, so I just wanted to call that out. So, so folks are uh, aware, because I know a lot of folks that if you haven't really been following this, you might not even know that there's this whole thing of prompt engineering and plugins for it. And in simple terms, it's garbage in or garbage out. Prompt is the cue you're giving to AI when you ask your question. So if you ask a better question, you're going to get a better result, uh, and that's the that's the key to this. You know, crafting the right question and using these prompts to help you. Um, so, Jerry, help us out here. What else do we need to know? Okay, so I think maybe even to um, take a small step back, when we think about prompt engineering or prompts, like what really are they, right? So, if you think about um, when you chat with ChatGPT, normally you're trying to have a conversation where you're, it's a sequence of questions and it's interactive. So you are prompt engineering on the fly because you're writing some prompts there, but you're not trying to create a, uh, a templatized prompt that you're using over and over again. So one of the more like powerful applications of uh, 
AI is that you can go create a templatized prompt that works for a broad set of data. So like, um, even though the data potentially may be templatized. So going back to Guy's example of the Lawmatics email, um, the prompt that you use with all of that CRM data is going to be the same prompt depending on each different case, right? It doesn't matter what the case is. Um, they pass in different data from the client, but then the prompt that you use to generate the email is the same. So that's kind of a canonical example of prompt engineering. So one of the challenges with this is like you can have a great prompt for um, something that works for three pieces of data. Let's say that we just want to summarize all the financials inside a family law case. Um, and then so if you have like bank statements organized in one way or another way, it'll give you like a nice summary. But now like based on the number of mutual funds to investment banks, the bank statements that are organized in a very different way, this one prompt may not create great results across different types of uh, system. So this is kind of like on the cutting edge of prompt engineering is as we deal with these broad sets of data and these problems, how do you create high accuracy um, from that? And to add to that is kind of like I'd want to explain what plugins are. So this additional idea of plugins, which ties into the whole autonomous agent thing, is like as you start using prompts and as it starts responding, you're going to be able to understand the intent of a user. So the best example is like as I order pizza, then this means that they want to, like the intent is to order food from a restaurant, right? So you can now hook up to that um, from the software engineering perspective and allow these systems to now call an external service to order the pizza. And that is kind of the plugin part. So we're gonna see these uh, prompts and these systems a lot more interactive with the different other systems out in the world. And I think that's really exciting. It is, it's cutting edge. Okay, so we have time to go to our final topic. Um, will AI ever reach super intelligence? So just by way of background, when we were talking, when we we're preparing um, this morning, I mentioned that there's this Google engineer. He used to work with Google. He's now a professor at the University of Toronto, uh, Jeffrey Hinton. And I don't know where he got this nickname, but some, somehow he's got this tag of godfather of AI. And he's he was he there's we'll put a link to this interview um, in our show notes. Essentially, he's saying once AI reaches super intelligence, then we're not going to be able to turn it off. It's going to be too smart. We're not going to be able to shut it down or control it. And that started me. I started thinking about Skynet and the Terminator movies. Right, the AI takes over the military system and they can't get it back under control. And this was just last couple of days. And then yesterday, the UN Security Council met to discuss AI issues and security issues, which I thought was interesting. And then last night, James Cameron was on the news uh, saying, I told you back in 1984, this was gonna happen. <laughs> he directed Terminator. And so it's full circle. And so we'll take a quick look at this next slide and then I'm gonna get our, our uh, expert's opinion here. So this next slide is the Jetsons. This is a cartoon from 1962. And it predicted all these things, which actually ended up happening, right? Remote vacuums, online classes, smartwatches, video calling, Skype and Zoom meetings, uh, teledocuments, flat screens. So in the 60s, nobody thought this would happen. And then here we are. So let's go back to the other slide. Superintelligence, AI. I know Guy's going to 
take it to a different level. So you go first, and then we're going to have Jerry bring us back to reality, maybe. Well, and just a qu- two things. One is, love the Jetsons reference, but where's my flying car? I was promised a flying car. <laughs> I think uh, you're working and, on it. And then the other one that I, uh, disclaimer here is, I am not an expert on AI. Jerry is. Uh, so I, I think that's it, it's interesting how it will it will shape kind of our responses to this, because for me, and, and I don't want to speak for Jerry, but to me, it's an inevitability thing. The question is, is time to me? How much time is it going to take for us to be able to get to the point where AI is able to do you know, 99% or even beyond what humans are capable of doing, quote unquote, from a uh, you know, intelligence or processing power standpoint? And to me, it's an inevitability. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I, I don't, there's nothing to me to tell. I mean, there are some big obstacles to overcome. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, chat GPT is not Skynet. Um, the next, you know, 100 versions of chat GPT are likely not Skynet. But one of the things that we're not good at as humans is comprehending exponential scale. And so the speed with which these intelligence and these machines get smarter. And again, I'm not even talking about like large language models, right? Like it's gonna require uh, advancements in computing power. You know, we can talk about quantum computing and all this stuff. So I think it's also important to to, uh, qualify that I'm not just talking about like generative AI. Uh, It's a totally, you know, we're talking about a totally different world here. Um, But to me, it's a natural inevitability. Now, could it take the form of some mix of biological and synthetic? Like maybe. Um, but to me, like I, I have enough evidence to see, even even with the basic technology. I mean, think about you know they were just you know we got Oppenheimer coming out. You know, think about the last hundred years. Think about what's happened in the last hundred years. It's mind blowing. And now the speed with which the acceleration of the technology is growing, it just seems to me more likely than not that we get to a point that um, the technology uh, is superior to us. That's that's just my view of it. It's inevitability. When that's going to happen, I don't know. You know, Kurzweil pegged it at like 20, 30 many years ago. Maybe that sounds a little bit too soon. Um, but, you know, and to the point that uh, Russ made, to me, this is also like genies out of the bottle. So the, the technology is so accessible, which is, you know, different from, say, like, you know, creating a nuclear weapon. You know, you can't just like go down to your hardware store and create a nuclear weapon. But the access to artificial intelligence uh, technology is going to be ubiquitous pretty quickly here, in my opinion. And so it's just, it just, there's so many, there's a coalescence of so many factors that it just seems so obviously inevitable to me, but that's my view. Love it. Uh, quite quick question came in asking what program I used for my particular avatar it was Ilii, E-L-A-I. Okay, Jerry, super intelligence, bring us back to uh well, maybe my, my mind actually, as I listen to Guy, I have to play the devil's advocate on the future side, which is like, what about all the other technology out there around like biotech and like Neuralink and stuff like that, right? Maybe humans become really smart. Like I think right. about this because, um, you know, when we think about computers, computers were very much built in the same way that we think ourselves. Like, for example, when you think about your memory, right? Your short-term memory is something that's basically like the RAM, random access memory in a computer. Your long-term memory is a lot more relational. You know, those are like, it's the LRU cache or something in a computer. So like, you know, we are actively in some ways trying to extend that. So in the future, there could be some types of um, 
more of a unified approach to things where your mind has access to all of these things and you know it's in in your will and i think that that would probably be like the ideal outcome of things as we improve because i think about you know they always talk about like oh our are is ai going to replace lawyers is ai going to replace software engineers but imagine if you had like a, a plugin or something that just lets you um be so much better at your job that would be really yeah. exciting in the future so yeah the other one that i always like to bring up when we talk about like will it you know will ai kill this thing or will technology end this thing uh npr national public radio here did a great thing on the planet money podcast but part of it, i don't want to ruin all of it but like how many telephone operators do you know <laughs> yeah yeah right and that was that was the, that was one of the largest employers in the u.s for years for Jeffrey Hinton's interview, it's going to be in our show notes. You can learn a lot more about this, but our hostess is back. Welcome back, Shannon. Thank you so much. There's a lot to unpack there. That was uh, so informative and inspiring. You have my wheels turning, that's for sure. Thanks so much, Guy and uh, Jerry, for joining us today. And thank you to our audience for all your participation. Um, and thanks for sending in your questions. I know a lot have been answered throughout, but we're going to take a few minutes here uh, with some more that came in just before we sign off. Um, so this question was kind of alluded to in one of the poll questions, but maybe you can expand on it. How can artificial intelligence help improve access to justice in family law cases, particularly for those who cannot afford legal representation? Well, I think Guy hit the nail on the head. If lawyers are more efficient, we're not spending three, four hours preparing an application, we can do it in 20 minutes. Uh, that first is going to stretch out that client's legal budget, and it's going to make the lawyer more available to service other clients. So those two steps alone will improve access to justice. But great question, Shannon. So it looks like we have time uh, maybe for one more. Um, so this one's specific to financial disclosure. Can AI be used to organize financial disclosure? Jerry? Well, we're doing that right now, Russ, with you guys, right? So um, we've found that, uh, you know, just sifting through the massive amount of data, and we talked about this earlier, Guy, um, which is that it's really efficient at that. And if you think about the practice of family law as it evolves, probably the most time-consuming parts is that the practice is becoming a lot more data-driven. So um, having help around this with AI to kind of gather all this data, analyze it, and then put it into the universally accepted formats of how you practice is going to be essential here. Great. Thanks so much, everyone, again. Um, and I'll let Russ, go over a little bit more about AI and the legal profession is upcoming book. That's it. Did you well, the new book coming in, so <laughs> you'll find it in the show notes. That's all I'm going to say. That's the teaser. All right. Sounds <laughs> Thanks so much. So again, uh, please feel free to reach out uh, with any general questions or comments to me at Shannon at RussellAlexander.com. So just want to thank everyone again. And uh, thank you again, Guy and Jerry, for being here with Russell today. It's such a pleasure. Mm -hmm.